You're listening to the Bridges Nashville podcast. Bridges is a house church movement meeting in homes all across Music City. To find a house church near you or to find other ways to support or get involved, go to bridgesnashville.com. The earth is flat. Well, that was the prevailing thought up until about 600 B.C. when ancient Greek philosophers discovered that by looking up at the stars and seeing how they curved across the earth, that the earth was indeed round. Now, funny side note, uh, in 2016, rapper B.O.B. tried to convince his Twitter followers that the earth was, in fact, flat. He even put together a GoFundMe account to raise $200,000 to send satellites into space and take new pictures. There's a lot wrong with that. I think it probably costs a lot more than $200,000 to send satellites into space, but nevertheless, and uh, I think they were able to raise about $656. Failed attempt. The earth is the center of the universe. Well, that was the prevailing thought until the 1600s when Italian mathematician Galileo Galilei, also one of the funnest names ever to say, uh, discovered when he looked through his telescope, that the earth is actually one of many planets that are orbiting around the sun. Now, at the time, the Catholic Church actually supported an earth-centric solar system, and so they tried Galileo Galilei and put him on trial for heresy. In fact, uh, he was thrown into house arrest for the remainder of his life. It wasn't until 300 years after Galileo had already passed on that he was exonerated by the Catholic Church and basically found not guilty of heresy. And the truth will set you free. We're talking about truth today, one of Paul's main themes in his letter to young Timothy. And I thought we'd have a little bit of fun with this. One of my favorite icebreakers to play when I've got a room with some new people is two truths and a lie. So we've got a little fun on the screen here. We're going to pop these up. And I want you to try to guess which one is a lie about me out of these three factoids, okay? Number one, my band this season won a competition to open for John Mayer. Number two, I got to sing the national anthem at a Washington Nationals baseball game. And number three, I played underwater hockey, yes, that is a thing, for a Virginia Tech club team. So who thinks number one is the fallacy? Oh, no hands. You guys have a lot of confidence in my band that you've never heard. Uh, Who thinks number two is the lie? Okay, we got a couple. Okay, Maddie. Okay, Becca. Uh, How about number three? I played underwater hockey for Virginia. Oh, okay, yep, yeah. So actually, one and three are true. Um, I actually, we did win a competition, got to open up for John Mayer in Indianapolis at the Verizon Center, one of the most incredible moments of my, my, my brief music career. And number three, I did actually play underwater hockey for a Virginia Tech club team. It is very difficult. You have to hold your breath. It's a two-pound puck that stays at the bottom of the pool, and you've got these little sticks, and you've got flippers and masks. Good cardio workout, but very hard. <laughs> Number two is still a bucket list item. I've never been able to sing the national anthem at a Washington Nats baseball game. So we're having a little bit of fun this morning, right, with two truths and a lie. But if we're honest with ourselves, the truth in our culture is under attack. Now, the search for truth is one of the most noble journeys that anyone can go on. And for those who find Jesus, for those who discover the truth of the gospel in their lives, you can actually say that you know what truth is. But culture at large right now is on this search for 
truth. In fact, Generation Z, those who were born between 1995 and 2010, have been called true gen because of their search for truth. Listen, knowing the truth and finding truth is everything. Here's how Jesus put it in John 14, verse 6. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In another conversation when he had some disciples around, he said this in John 8, verse 32, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Welcome to Bridges Nashville. This weekend, we continue our series, The Good Fight, as we've been looking at this letter written by the Apostle Paul. Now, Apostle Paul was one of these guys who was a persecutor of the church, had a radical, uh, radical encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, and then he goes on to plant about 14 churches all across ancient Mesopotamia, so from persecutor of the church to planter of the church. And he would start a church, he would raise up leaders, and then he would move on and start a church somewhere else. And so Timothy is actually one of his protégés that he poured into, raised up, and he pastored the church of the Ephesians. It was in modern-day Turkey, a place called Ephesus. And at this time, this is the generation after Jesus ascended to heaven. There were a lot of false teachings going around because the Christian church was brand new. A lot of false teachings, false doctrines circulating within the church in a day and age where people all around in culture were already worshiping false gods, chasing after every indulgence of the flesh, and doing whatever they saw right in their own eyes. Does that sound familiar? See, in 2,000 years, I am sorry to say, we haven't come too far from ancient Rome, have we? And so as we've been in this series throughout the month of January, we've been looking at the first three chapters of 1 Timothy, and today we're moving into chapter 4, and uh, we are going to get through the entire chapter. It's only 16 verses, but this is going to be fun. It starts in verse 1. Now the Holy Spirit tells us clearly that in the last times, some will turn away from the true faith. They will follow deceptive spirits and teachings that come from demons. Wow, Paul is not pulling any punches here. Now each year, Oxford Dictionaries chooses a word of the year. In the editor's opinion, this is a word that best reflects the cultural moment of that year. And in the year 2015, it was actually an emoji. It was the smiling face emoji. I guess they felt like 2015 was a really happy year. Uh, but in 2016, the word of the year that Oxford Dictionaries chose is post-truth. Post-truth, which they define as relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion or personal belief or in plainer English, the facts don't really matter as much as my feelings do. And maybe you've heard of this thought that's been popping into circles in our post-truth area. It's this word relativism. And relativism, it kind of stands on some shaky ground. We're going to talk a little bit about this. Relativism actually states the purpose that everyone can find their truth and find their freedom. But as Jesus said, it's only the truth that sets you free. Here's my point. If everyone just does whatever they want, living out their version of the truth, and there is no absolute truth, then anarchy is sure to follow. See, if I interpret a red light as actually meaning green because it means that to me, that danger is soon to follow as soon as I enter that intersection. Let me make it a little bit more personal for us today. 
if we define marriage outside of a biblical context, outside of a committed relationship between a husband and a wife, uh, danger is sure to follow after that. See, relativism is based on the thought that you can determine the truth instead of discover it. Now, if we define the truth in our own terms, uh, we set ourselves on a course for destruction. Is anybody with me today? Appreciate that. See, when we determine our own truth, we actually take the roadmap that we've been given, we throw it out the window and say, I can write my own directions to get to where I need to be. It's like having access to Google Maps or Waze and saying, no, that's okay. I'm going to make my own path. And where do you wind up when that happens? Lost. Now, I'm one of these guys, and my wife Sarah can tell you that it doesn't matter how many times I've been to a place, I still need ways open on my phone giving me directions to that place, even if it's my own house. Okay, somehow I always get lost unless I've got a navigation app open. Something about that calming voice really helps me out. I prefer the Australian voice. Uh, But we all get lost and confused every now and then. But I want to tell you this morning that we have a roadmap that can always be referred to. We can always go back. It's the Word of God. It's the guiding Holy Spirit of God. And it's the way of Jesus. In fact, he said, I am the way. And he's the truth. You know, when Jesus was arrested and on trial before his crucifixion, there's this powerful interaction that he has with one of the Roman officials named Pilate. And Pilate was like, he, he was like a lot of people in that day and age. Like, he, he actually liked Jesus. He didn't see anything wrong with Jesus. In fact, he questioned, why are these people trying to crucify this guy? I see no fault in him. And Pilate is simply trying to get to the truth. Check out John 18, 37 and 38. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born, this is huge, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Pilate responded like so many today and so many 2,000 years ago. What is truth? See, Pilate has truth standing right within his grasp, and he still questions what is truth. And I would ask us, Sometimes we have the truth right in front of us whenever we go to the word of God, but we still ask the question, what is truth? I think part of the answer can be found by unpacking the actual word for truth. It's this Greek word, aletheia, and it means reality. If you're taking notes, write that down. Aletheia, it means reality. And so whenever Jesus talks about truth, he's saying, look, I'm the real deal. Like, I'm in front of you. You don't have to question. Reality is living out before your eyes. Come to me. There's 109 occurrences of this word, aletheia, throughout the New Testament, five of them occurring in 1 Timothy alone. And so when we go back to this letter that Paul wrote to his young protege, he's telling him, listen, cling to the truth. Cling to the reality that you see in front of you, to the reality that you have lived out to the real experience. You know, you can talk to somebody all you want about knowledge, but experience will always supersede that. Hey, how's that working for you? I had a conversation the other day with one of my buddies. He used to lead worship, and uh, we would travel on the road, and he's now a proclaimed atheist. And, and I just simply asked him, well, what about the experience? Like, what about, what about the reality that you've experienced with Jesus? And he was just silent. And I said, 
well, how's your, your current reality working out for you? And he started to cry. I don't know what God's doing in his life, but I think he's coming to a crossroads where he's got to figure out what is reality, what is truth, and which direction am I going to go in. And Paul is telling Timothy, look, you've got to let doctrine be your guide. Sound doctrine and diligence. These are two words that appear multiple times in the book of 1 Timothy. Don't be deceived. 1 Timothy chapter 4, let's look at verse 2. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. There that word is again. For everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of prayer. Okay, what is Paul talking about? We've got food, we've got marriage, we've got consecration. And here's what Paul is teaching young Timothy. He says, look, you got to denounce anything that preaches a salvation other than in Christ. It is in Christ alone. It's not in all of this stuff that, so at the time there were these guys called Gnostics, starting with a G, G-N-O-S-T-I-C-S. And Gnostics taught in that day and age that anything material was evil and thus had to be avoided to live a perfect life in God's eyes, even God's tangible creation. Obviously, Paul had to put that lie to rest because going back to Genesis in the creation account, we see that after everything God made, he steps back and he says that it was good in the very beginning. Marriage and food, two of my favorite things. I love my wife, I love to eat, and an extra bonus, she can cook really well. And I'm grateful that Paul makes it very clear that there's nothing wrong with those two things, as some teachers in that day and age would believe. So let's read on to verse 6. If you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, he tells Timothy, you'll be a good minister of Christ Jesus, nourished on the truths, there that word is again, truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed have nothing to do with godless myths or old wives' tales. Rather, train yourselves to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. Verse 9. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Okay, that right there is like Paul saying, hey, highlight this right here. That is why we labor and strive, because... We have put our hope in the living God who is the Savior of all people and especially of those who believe. And I would say that would probably be circled with a quill back in that day and age. That's the highlight. Now, here's what I love about this passage. Paul doesn't spend a whole lot of time dismantling the lies as much as he does upholding the truth. Catch me in that. Paul doesn't really harp on all of the false teaching as much as he says, hey, here's what you got to do. Don't worry about what not to do so much as what to do. Now, he mentions a couple of false teachings, as he did in the previous verse, but he mostly spends his time talking about the positive teaching and the example to live. He's not telling Timothy, look, there's going to be these guys that are going to come along, and you're going to have to come up with ways to defend the gospel. You're going to have to defend the truth, and we hear that phrase all the time. We've got to defend the faith. And let me just push back on that a little bit, because Paul is reminding that to live the gospel is far more effective than trying to defend it. Whoo! He's telling him, look, to live is Christ. To live is Christ. He's saying, look, the gospel 
The truth of Jesus will disprove anything that tries to set itself up against the knowledge of Christ. Light will always expel darkness. Truth will always snuff out the lies. So if we focus on living in truth, if we focus as being light, as Jesus said, you're salt and light, then guess what? The darkness has to be pushed back. Lies have to be exposed. Truth and light will always win. Isn't it amazing? And I was, you know, I got up early this morning, and I, I always try to, like, I mean, I got up at, like, 5 a.m., so I go out to the kitchen, get the coffee on, and I don't want to wake up the kids quite that early. And so I, I turn on this little light. It's a tiny light right above our sink, and it's supposed to just give off a little bit of light. But over time, that thing becomes like a lighthouse. I mean, it goes from like this tiny light, and then I, I come, you know, back from upstairs, and the light is like radiating the entire house, and Nora comes walking in, and I'm like, oh, my, no. Have you noticed that about light? Or a candle. You can light a candle in a pitch black room, and it starts small, but it radiates over time. Don't miss that. A little light can always push back a lot of dark. So when you live as the light and you live in the truth of Christ, here's what happens. The atmosphere around you has to respond. And so Paul likens true faith to nourishment here. And he, he likens godliness to exercise. Now, food and exercise are the building blocks of a healthy life. And Paul is saying that for us to be healthy followers of Jesus, uh, you need a diet of godliness and truth. This is why Daily reading the Bible is so important. What did Jesus say? Man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The Bible is nourishment to our souls. And in verse 8, Paul says, look, physical exercise is great, but it only profits this life. Godliness will profit this life and the next one. Now, this is huge because so many times... Uh, have you ever heard the phrase, well, you're too uh, heaven-minded to be any earthly good? And some people are too earthly-minded to even think of eternity. And Paul is saying this about godliness or walking upright, righteousness, walking in the way of the Lord. He's saying, look, this is going to profit this life and the one to come. So you don't have to worry about only being heaven-minded and no earthly good. No, godliness profits both of those sides of eternity. Now, the highlight, as I said from this passage that we just read, we have put our hope in the living God, the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Especially of those who believe. The God who gives us hope. Let me make this personal here. A couple of weeks ago, a little bit more than a couple of weeks ago, I, I, I had COVID. Like so many people have gotten over these last couple of months, it seems like it's everywhere and you know, I'm trying to stay home and isolate, and it was a pretty dark time, if I'm honest, because I'm an extrovert. I love being around people, but not being around people, it's kind of like, oh, just let me outside, but I did isolate, and we stayed in that 10-day range, and here's the deal. Um, for whatever reason, my thoughts just began to go crazy in my head. Am I alone in this? Like when you isolate, sometimes you just start to rehash all these things. And I began to think about past failures. And, and I started to think away about the ways that I'm not measuring up to my expectations or other certain expectations. And I started comparing myself to other people and other ministries. And I really got down in this time. So I practiced what I preached. I, I went to the Lord. 
And I just prayed an honest prayer. I said, God, give me hope. Give me hope. Now, for this year, I've been praying with a journal at my side so that when the Lord gives me something, I write it down so I can go back to and see the track record of his faithfulness and answered prayers. And I just began to write out these prayers. I wrote out, God, give me hope for the future and for today. Let me be somebody who walks with hope. Let me be someone who spreads hope to others. And in my journal, I wrote this, overwhelm me with hope. Overwhelm me with hope. I won't settle. I won't retreat. I'm moving forward with confidence and hope. And I began to thank God for the hope of the gospel, the hope of salvation, the hope of glory in Christ Jesus and sharing in his glory and the fact that Jesus is an anchor, a hope for our soul, according to Hebrews chapter 6. Is anybody with me today? And as I fixed my mind and my heart on hope, something happened in the room. My heart began to swell, and I started to realize, man, God has given it to us. He is the living God, as Paul wrote, the God who gives hope. My entire day shifted. So then we have this last section of 1 Timothy chapter 4. I told you we'd get through the whole chapter, and, and you could just see in this section here how much Paul loves Timothy as he encourages him to be bold. Now, for the young leaders in the room, you really want to lean into this part because you cannot let your age be something that holds you back because in 1 Timothy chapter 4, authority is not tied to seniority. That's good. Authority in Christ and in his calling and in his purpose is not tied to seniority. It's tied to the call of God. Listen to this. Command and teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech and conduct and love and faith and in purity. We'll get back to those. Until I come, devote yourselves to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Huh, we still do this in church every Sunday. Do not neglect your gift, which was given you through prophecy when the body of elders laid hands on you. Now, this goes back to chapter 1. Remember when Paul tells him, hey, you've been given this gift. Don't doubt it. Verse 15, be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them. Because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. I was recently listening to a podcast with uh, John Mark Comer. He's an author and a pastor out in Portland, Oregon. And I love what he said. He said, as a Christian leader, it's my job to live a life of Example and invitation. If you're taking notes, write those two things down. It's our job to live a life of example and invitation. Be a Christ-like example to everyone you meet in every situation. Don't just talk the talk. Walk the walk. Your life may be the only Bible that some people ever read. Are you a good translation? And Paul lays out what a life of example looks like in five key areas. This is huge. He tells Timothy, you got to be an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Now, speech and conduct have to do with your outward life. What you say matters. What you do matters. Does your language just fit in with the language of the world? Do your actions speak louder than words? 
Is what you do reflective of a life and a faith in Jesus? Because as James said, faith without works is dead. Now, purity and faith, those are inner life matters. See, what happens within will always spill out into the open. And if you live according to faith and purity, that actually is going to affect and impact your words and your actions. So we've got speech, conduct, faith, and purity, and then we've got love. And Paul is saying, look, love is the bridge that holds it all together. In fact, in another letter that he would write to the Corinthians, he would say, look, there's amazing things. There's faith, there's hope, and there's love. But the greatest of all these is love. And then he goes on and writes a chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, probably the most quoted chapter in weddings everywhere. It's the love chapter. Paul is all about a Christ-like love. So we've got to live by that example. And we've got to live by invitation. Listen, invite people into your life into purpose, into community, into discipleship, into relationship, into serving with one another. It gets me so excited when I go out into the lobby and I see everybody just kind of talking and they're serving and they're getting ready for the morning. Man, that's how relationship happens. That's how discipleship happens. In our house churches, when we meet on the second and fourth week, when we go deep, we dive in, we do life together around a table. And it's all about community. It's all about discipleship. It's all about relationship. It's living a life of invitation. I mean, literally, our house church leaders invite people into their homes. And for Timothy and for us, as I said earlier, it's diligence and sound doctrine. Diligence is perseverance. is not giving up. You, you got all these things, Paul said. Man, be diligent and sound doctrine. Know what you believe. Remember Pastor David on our opening weekend. You got to know your belief. There's so much out there today that can distract you and throw you off course, take you out of your calling, take you off course of your purpose. So we have to be diligent in our faith. We got to persevere. Let me close this out today. When I was 18, I went through a pretty big discovery. I grew up a preacher's kid. I'm still a preacher's kid. My dad pastors up in upstate New York. But I had grown up in the house of a preacher. Okay, so I was a Christian automatically, right? Or so I thought, you know. And when I turned 18, I got out of my parents' house for the very first time, and I got my own place. It was a place on campus, and I really had to figure out, is this my faith or is this my parents' faith? Because God doesn't have grandkids. He only has kids. So for the first time in my life, I got to figure out, is this mine? And I go to Virginia Tech, and uh, let me just say my freshman year, uh, it was a little wild, Okay, I'm saved by grace, amen. But I went to some parties, I dated casually, I, I, I got caught in the college life and all of its trappings. And I got to this summer after my freshman year, and I was restless. I was restless. I couldn't sleep well, I wasn't sure who I was. And that summer after my freshman year, I had a reckoning. Something wasn't adding up. And I was about to go on a date with a girl who had no interest in Jesus or the church. I drove my car up to her driveway. She starts walking down, and I feel the Holy Spirit grab me. He says, Curtis, what are you doing? This isn't truth. This isn't you. So she comes to grab the handle. I roll down the window. I said, I'm so sorry. I've got to leave, and I just peeled out. Not the best way to start a date, um, but I had to get alone with God, and I drove out to this open field in my hometown of Salem, Virginia. 
and my 1989 Camaro, great place for God to do some work. Great car. And I, I just sat there, and I, I began to think about my circumstances. Think about the restlessness. Think about how I, I was in a battle. I couldn't sleep well. I didn't feel like I knew who I was anymore. And then I began to replay God's faithfulness in my life. I started to think of moments where he showed up, moments where he spoke to me, miracles in my life, times where my life was literally saved. And I put those moments in a category I like to call evidence. Because evidence always reveals the truth. And right there in my car that night, I said, all right, God, this is my faith now. I'm going to live for the truth, and I'm going to give my life to you. It hasn't always been easy. Let me promise you, there will be moments where you feel like you're getting a little off course, but you can always go back to the map. You can always go back to the truth. His arms are open wide. He is the running father. You've heard the parable of the prodigal son. In the original Hebrew, it's called the parable of the running father. His arms are open wide. He's always ready to welcome you back into his hope. So as the band comes out this morning, just three questions I have. Are you searching for truth today? Are you allowing watered-down teaching to get to you? Who are you listening to? What are you listening to? Because if the Holy Spirit isn't the loudest voice in your life, well, then you start to get a little confused. We've got to let him be our guiding light. Are you building your life on the foundation of truth in Jesus? He is the truth. There is no other way. Let's pray today. Thanks for listening to the Bridges Nashville podcast. To stay up to date on everything going on at Bridges, you can find us online at facebook.com slash Bridges Nashville or at Bridges Nashville on Instagram.